The following sermon is from the archives of Dr. Stephen Olford. It was preached during his distinguished ministry at Calvary Baptist Church in New York City. Our current series from 2 Corinthians is God's Call to Church Action. This is part 12, Growing and Groaning, the Travail of the Ministry. Our text, 2 Corinthians 4.16 through 5.10. Now, here is Dr. Stephen Olford. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer, for Jesus Christ's sake. Amen. Will you turn with me to the second epistle of Paul to the Corinthians? For our visiting friends, let me just say that we are pursuing a series of studies in this wonderful document we call the second letter of Paul to the Corinthians entitled God's Call to Church Action. And we're dealing with a section we're entitling The Fellowship of Ministration. Last Sunday, we were thinking of the trials of the ministry. This morning, we pursue that a little further and consider together the travail of the ministry. And we shall start at chapter 4, verse 16, and work our way through to 5.10. Having dilated upon the trials of the ministry, Paul now extends his line of thought to what we've already termed the travail of the ministry. This, of course, is one of Paul's great themes throughout all his epistles. Writing to the saints at Philippi, he says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being made conformable unto his death, if that by any means I might attain unto the out-resurrection from amongst the dead. In his letter to the Colossians, he says, I, Paul, am made a minister who now rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up that which is behind or lacking in the afflictions of Christ in my flesh for his body's sake, which is the church. Here in this passage before us, Paul describes this suffering and travail under what we might term growing in the ministry and groaning in the ministry. And in our latter word, confuse it not, please, with anything to do with moaning or lamenting. There is a connotation implicit in this great concept of groaning which has come home to my heart with new meaning and new freshness. And I share it with you this morning. Growing in the ministry. Groaning in the ministry. To the first the travail of growing in the ministry. For which cause, verse 16, we faint not, but though our outward man perish, yet the inward man is renewed day by day while we look at the things which are unseen. Given spiritual life and health, there is a process of growth and development which would characterize every normal Christian and particularly those of us who are engaged in the ministry of the word. Most of us, however, only see a development in terms of growing in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. But in these verses, Paul comes to it with another slant. And I want to speak on three directions of growth to which Paul makes reference here. 
There is, first of all, what I'd call the outward growth which weakens us. The outward growth which weakens us. Our outward man perishes. Let's face it, sooner or later we get old. And I'm one to speak. I sense it every day, and so do you. And despite everything we put into the program of keeping fit, since these are the bodies of the Holy Ghost, in which the very life of Christ is being revealed and communicated, we have to face it that sooner or later we get old. Man, by reason of his human nature, weakens physically as the years slip by and old age advances. Moses, in that classic psalm of his, says, The days of our years are threescore and ten, and if by reason of strength they be fourscore years, yet is their strength, labor, and sorrow, for it is soon cut off, and we fly away. However great a Christian person might be, he's still the victim of circumstances. He's still involved in human situations over which he has no control. He's still subject to the changes and chances of life. And his mortal body gets weaker and weaker and weaker as the days go by. We talk a great deal about the power of man and the vast resources that he has under his control today in this space age of ours, in this atomic age, so-called. But the real characteristic of man is not his strength, but his weakness. As the famous philosopher, scientist, and theologian Blaise Pascal has said, a drop of water, a breath of air, can kill him. We grow old. We grow old. To acknowledge this outward growth which weakens us is a costly discipline. Indeed, it constitutes one of the travails of the ministry. Some of us remember when we could roll up our sleeves and preach six times a day and think nothing of it. We could race through the land by air, over the rough roads, and think nothing of it. But as those years advance, we sense limitations impinging upon us. And we know we're getting old and old and older. And with that, the weakening processes. There's a growing which weakens us. And not to recognize the increasing limitations that advancing years make upon us is to be filled very often with frustration and defeat. The only healthy attitude to adopt is that of Moses. True, I'm getting old. So what does Moses say? Teach us to number our days that we may ply our hearts unto wisdom. There is an outward growth which weakens us. But alongside of that, notice verse 16, there is an inward growth which quickens us. The inward man is renewed day by day. William Barclay has a beautiful thought here I want to share with you. He says, the very sufferings which leave a man with a weakened body may be the very thing which strengthens the sinews of his soul. It was the prayer of the poet, let me grow lovely, growing old. The years which take away physical beauty should add spiritual beauty. From the physical point of view, life may be a slow but inevitable slipping down the slope that leads to death. And death 
to the grave. But from the spiritual point of view, life is a climbing up the hill that leads to the peak of the presence of God. No man need fear the ears, for they bring him nearer not to death, but to God. And I don't think anything has thrilled my soul more than this passage over this past week and in fact weeks. To think that however much we may show age in terms of the harrowed brow, the wrinkled face, the shaky hand, the advancing years and their impact upon our physical frame, it's possible, listen, to get more and more beautiful Godward. So that age has no terrors for the Christian. Let me grow old, but let me grow old lovely. And the more the years advance, the sweeter, the purer, the more noble, the more beautiful should be the Christian. Though our inward man is renewed, our old man perishes. And conversely, though our old man perishes, our inward man is renewed. This inward renewal, of course, doesn't come fortuitously. It's a matter of discipline and determination. The Christian must not only appropriate the means of grace, the word of God and its study and mastery, the place of prayer with its ministry of intercession, the infilling of the Spirit and the mighty anointing day by day. But more than that, there should be the outworking of this. We're to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. And it's this spiritual gymnastics of intake and outtake that makes the soul beautiful. May the beauty of our God be upon us. God make us beautiful Christians. Beautiful Christians. Yes, there is a discipline and a determination which must characterize our lives if we're going to grow old, lovely, as the poet puts it. In our public life as Christians, of course, there is more than just the individual quiet time, the culture of the soul. There is this discipline of our church. And Luke puts it perfectly when he says, continuing steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and in fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers. And the Greek has that definite article as if to single out each one of these for individual importance and as a means of grace indispensable for the development of the church in beauty and glory and holiness, continuing steadfastly in Christian teaching and the fellowship of saints and the breaking of the bread and the prayers. That's how the church grew beautiful in that first century. That's why they took knowledge of those early apostles that they had been with Jesus. There is an outward growth then which weakens us. There is an inward growth which quickens us. But look again. There is an upward growth which strengthens us. Verses 17 and 18, for our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory, while we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. 
Follow me carefully here. Nothing strengthens the Christian more than the vision beatific. By looking off unto Jesus, human weakness in our ministry is outmatched by divine strength. Our text, for which cause we faint not, but though our outward man perish, yet our inward man is renewed day by day. Next, by looking off to Jesus, present suffering in our ministry is outweighed by future glory. Text, for our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Again, by looking off to Jesus, temporal things in our ministry are outclassed by spiritual and eternal things. Our text, for the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. It is this vision beatific which kept the Old Testament saints steady and true amidst the pressures and temptations of their lives. Think, for instance, of Abraham who looked for a city. He looked for a city whose builder and maker was God. Yes, Moses endured as seeing him who is invisible. And we read of the rest. They died in faith, having received not the promises, but looking, looking for that day of consummation. So we're exhorted here in our text not to look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. I say, what a word this is to our materialistic age. The strength of our Christian life is not to be judged by our links with the world, but to be judged by our links with the world to come. In 1957, most of you know we had a crusade in this great city of New York. The evangelist was Dr. Billy Graham. And I remember one night when heaven touched earth. There was an unusual anointing upon the evangelist that night. And as he preached, one sensed that heaven was open. The Son of God was smiling upon that piece of evangelistic endeavor. And as I say, heaven touched earth. Hundreds came forward that night, and many of those hundreds were gloriously won to Christ. Spent, we made our way to the hotel, and I recall standing outside of an elevator, a private elevator to one of the top rooms where Dr. Graham rested during the crusade. And as we waited for that elevator, I said, Billy, wouldn't it be wonderful? If we stepped into this elevator and we were hoisted right up into the presence of God, right into heaven. And he looked at me and he said, whatever made you say that? And I looked back at him and I said with absolute sincerity, I remember it so clearly. Billy, I don't think I ever felt so homesick for heaven as I did tonight. To me, that was the ultimate I just wanted to go home to glory, not return again. Why? Because somehow heaven had become so real. The things of earth had grown strangely dim in the light and glory of his grace in redemptive power as manifested in that service. The upward, the upward, the upward growth which strengthens us. And I'm telling you, the more, the more I see of events today, the more I hear of the news, the more I get down to some of the insights of statesmen and others who share what they feel about the days that immediately lie ahead of us, the happier I am that I'm bound for heaven. 
And the strength of my Christian life is not the links that hold me to this world, but the links that bind me to a world to come. Growing in the ministry. Christian, is that your experience? Sunday school teacher, executive here, doctor, lawyer, schoolboy, is that your growing? Are you experiencing it? Yes, there is a growth which weakens us. It's outward. It's physical. It's inevitable. There's an inward growth which quickens us. For our inner, inner man, our inward man is renewed day by day. But best of all, there's an upward growth. A pulling. A pulling heavenward. Which strengthens us while we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. Come with me to our second division here this morning. Paul continues his theme into what we call the fifth chapter, which is an unfortunate break here. Verses 1 through 10, which is the next paragraph. With the travail of growing in the ministry, there is secondly the travail of groaning in the ministry. Groaning in the ministry. For we know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved, we have a building of God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. And then he adds, for in this we groan earnestly. The travail of groaning in the ministry. Now in these verses, Paul is sharing with us a level of Christian experience which is seldom known by the average church member today. No one can enjoy intimate communion with the Savior without knowing the power of his resurrection and, listen carefully, the fellowship of his sufferings. And make no mistake about it, the fellowship of his sufferings isn't suffering for Christ. The Bible teaches that when I suffer for sin, it issues in punishment. If I suffer for Christ, it issues in persecution. But when I suffer with Christ, that's redemptive passion. That's something quite different. And when Paul talks about my greatest ambition, I'm emulous, he says. I aspire to this greatest peak of Christian experience to know him and the power of his resurrection. I must know that power in order to experience the suffering. Only his indwelling life in me, renewing me, can enable me to take the suffering. But I long to know that suffering with Christ and be made conformable unto his death. If by any means I might attain to that out-resurrection, which in my judgment is something to be experienced here. For I don't believe Paul is speaking there primarily of the resurrection of the body. It's this peak experience, this normal Christian life, this life above the common to which he's directing our attention. Very well then. We must never forget that the Bible speaks of a travailing Savior now, now. Isaiah 53, 11, he shall see of the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. And only those who share in the suffering now with him will enter into the satisfaction of that eternal day. So let's find out what we mean by this travailing in the ministry, this travail of groaning in the ministry. Note, first of all, that it involves the groaning of intercession. The groaning of intercession. Jot that down. The groaning of intercession. Look at verses 2 and 3 again. For in this we groan earnestly, desiring to be clothed upon 
with our house which is from heaven, if so be that being clothed we shall not be found naked. Now those of you who are thinking along with me at this very moment will realize at once that this is but an echo of Romans chapter 8. An echo of Romans chapter 8. There found there these very words, For we know that the whole creation groaneth and traveleth in pain together until now, and not only they, but we also, that have the first fruits of the Spirit, even ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption to wit. Yes, the redemption of our body. And then he says, Likewise, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities, for we know not what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit, the Spirit, maketh intercession for us and therefore in us with groanings which cannot be uttered. To hasten the redemption of the body, we're called upon to share in this ministry of intercession with our Savior in heaven. And let us remember that we have not only a traveling Savior at the throne, but we have an interceding Savior. The Bible tells us, Wherefore he is able to save to the uttermost all that come unto God by him. See, he ever liveth to make intercession for us. Did you know, my friend, that Christ is praying at this very moment in heaven? And his prayers will never end until he sees of the travail of his soul and is completely satisfied. And this is what Paul is speaking of here when he longs to lay aside his tent and be clothed upon with a house from heaven. John the Apostle says the same thing when he says, Even so, come Lord Jesus, I long for that day when you're completely satisfied. I long for that day when you have seen of the travel of your soul and are satisfied. And until that day, I want to share with thee, Lord, in this groaning of intercession. I want your heart throb to echo in my breast. I don't want to be irrelevant and isolated and uninvolved from a groaning creation. The whole creation groaneth, says Paul, and we also groan. I can't hear the minor note of a bird. I can't see a rotting log. I can't hear of a chaos in Vietnam. I can't sense the race tensions of today. I can't look into the burning issues of today and stand outside of them all. He is traveling to bring to pass the complete liberation of his creation. And I share that with him. Why? Because if his heart beats with mine, I can't be isolated. You know anything about praying to bring to pass the purposes of God? I don't pretend to know why God has chosen the ministry of prayer to advance his purposes, but it's very clear that those who don't know the travail of this groaning and intercession will suffer immeasurable loss at the judgment seat of Christ. Yes, immeasurable loss. This is what Paul means when he says, if so, being clothed, we shall not be found naked. In other words, listen carefully, there is a nakedness in glory which is the consequence of faithlessness down here. Paul teaches that life and service on earth determine the measure in which the incorruptible body in heaven reflects and reveals the resplendent glory of our heavenly Lord. As one star differeth to another, he says, in glory, so it is in the resurrection of the dead. So we repeat that there is a nakedness in glory which is the consequence of a faithlessness here upon earth. Dr. G. Campbell Morgan has a striking comment on this point 
And I quote him. He says it is possible to enter into the heavenly condition with no results accruing from our earthly testimony. Some may be found naked. The groaning of intercession. And beloved, when I tell you as your pastor to make sure you have your daily quiet time, to kneel with your open body by a Bible and open soul to the influences of heaven by the Holy Spirit. I'm only telling you half the truth. True, you need that for your own spiritual culture and development and growth. But that's only the average. There is something way above that to which God calls us and it's this entering into this ministry of travel and groaning, taking upon us a little share, a little share of the earth's problems. Traveling to bring to birth souls. Traveling again that Christ might be formed in them. Traveling for a groaning church. Traveling for a groaning creation. Entering into that which God is seeking to do in all we see around us today. The question is whether or not you and I are prepared to pay the price. Not to pay the price is to be found naked. But with the groaning of intercession, I want you to notice, secondly, that there is the groaning of expectation. The groaning of expectation. Verses 4 and 5. For we that are in this tabernacle do groan, being burdened, not that we should be unclothed, but clothed upon, that mortality might be swallowed up of life. Now he that hath wrought us for this selfsame thing is God who also hath given unto us, listen carefully, the earnest of the Spirit. Now no one can be filled with the ungrieved and unquenched Spirit of God without groaning with expectation for that moment when mortality will be swallowed up of life. To have the earnest of the Spirit is to have the guarantee of our immortality. Now where this are not Assurance, where this not a certainty, where this not true of everyone here in this place this morning, then I'd question your regenerate state. I'd question whether you're in grace. I'd question whether you've ever been born again. And I appeal to anyone here and those listening to my voice that if this doesn't find an echo in your heart, you seek the Savior. You bow in contrition at the cross. You turn in repentance toward God and in faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. But I know if I'm speaking to believers, then you have the earnest of the Spirit. You have a guarantee of immortality. There is an assurance in your heart. God's Spirit witnesses with your spirit that you are a child of God. And Peter tells us that one of the evidences that we are born of God is that we have not only a living hope, but I like the authorized, a lively hope. And there's a groaning of expectation. Lord Jesus, Lord Jesus, it's wonderful to serve thee down here. But all oh, the glory that awaits me to serve thee yonder in the far reaches of those uncharted eternal ages. Lord, I want to go to heaven. I want to go to heaven. The groaning of expectation. Paul had it. Paul had it. He writes to his beloved church at Philippi and he says, I am in a strait betwixt two, having a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. And again he says, our citizenship is in heaven 
in heaven from whence we look for our Savior. Who shall transform these bodies of humiliation? John experienced this. He says, where the sons of God, that's wonderful, that's wonderful. But I have a groaning expectation. It does not yet appear what we shall be. For we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is. This expectation, I want to tell you, my friend, is the secret of a holy life. The secret of a holy life, for John goes right on to say, everyone that hath this hope in him purifieth himself even as he is pure. And if a man is not living a holy life, if a woman is not living a pure life, the cause is not far to seek. It isn't just neglect of the word. It isn't that they're not only living in the Holy Spirit. It isn't that they're not witnessing for him. It's just this. They know nothing of this earnest of the Spirit, this groaning expectation to see Christ face to face. But have that hope burning in your heart and you'll be living that pure, chaste life that waits any moment to look the Savior face to face. The groaning of intercession, the groaning of expectation, finally and briefly, the groaning of aspiration. Verse 9, Wherefore we labor that whether present or absent, we may be accepted of him. This literally means, Wherefore we are emulous, that whether at home or away from home we may dwell pleasing to him. Paul leaves us in no doubt as to what should be the aspiration of the victorious Christian. And it's twofold, and here it is. First of all, we're to please Christ in life. We are to please Christ in life. Our text again, therefore, we're always confident that knowing whilst we are at home in the body, we're absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith and not by sight. In other words, Paul is telling us here that the aspiration of the Christian is to live pleasing to him while we're here upon earth. Where we walk not by sight, but by faith. And this calls, of course, for a life of faith. For we're told that without faith, it is impossible to please him. Furthermore, whatsoever is not of faith is sin. There is only one life which really pleases God, and that is the life of Jesus in us. And this life can never be known except by faith. That's why Paul says, I finished with the old life, I had been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in this body, I live by faith. Faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Let us see to it then that we walk by faith and not by sight, so that whether present or absent, we may be pleasing to our master. Having made that point, I conclude by saying, if in life we're to please him, in death we're also to please him. We're to please him in death. For verse 10 concludes our passage, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in the body according that he hath done whether it be good or bad. Now, although by no means is this the only passage in the word of God concerning the judgment seat of Christ, to my mind, it's the most solemn. The theory of a general judgment of saint and sinner has no foundation in scripture whatsoever. The New Testament teaches categorically that there is the bima, there is the thronos, the bima for believers, the thronos, 
for the unsaved. One is to take place right after the rapture, when God's people are going to stand before that judgment seat to answer for the things done in the body, whether they be good or bad. The other is going to come beyond that, beyond the thousand years of Christ's millennial reign, where heaven and earth have passed away and the throne us suspended in ether, pure and white and holy, is going to be the bar at which great and small, rich and poor, young and old, are going to be judged for the rejection of Jesus Christ. But there is a beamer, there is a judgment seat. And two things I want to say about that judgment seat as we conclude. It's a place where believers are going to be reviewed. A place where believers are going to be reviewed. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And the word of God teaches that believers will be reviewed in relation to their motives. 1 Corinthians 4, 5, their conduct. Romans 14, 7 through 12, their service. 1 Corinthians 3, 13. We can't study these passages without being solemnized in God's presence that our motives, our conduct, our service is going to be reviewed in that day. It's going to be reviewed in that day. We're talking, are we not, of the groaning, not of intercession at the moment, not of expectation, but of aspiration to please him in life or in death. And if I'm going to please him, having passed through the article of death, it's to stand before the judgment seat of Christ, unashamed concerning my motives, unashamed concerning my conduct, unashamed concerning my service. The judgment seat of Christ is to review all believers. Finally, the judgment seat of Christ is to reward all believers, that everyone may receive the things done in the body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. In the scriptures, good service is likened to gold, silver, and precious stones. Bad service is likened to wood, hay, and stubble. So obviously there can be a gaining of rewards or a losing of rewards. In the one case, we're told to look to ourselves that we lose not the things that we have gained. In the other instance, Paul tells us, let no man rob you of your prize. To live carelessly and dreamily is to lose our rewards in that day. On the other hand, to travel in faith, in life, in prayer, to grow and to grow in the Holy Ghost for the glory of God is to receive the Master's well done good and faithful servant enter thou into the joy of thy Lord no wonder Paul says wherefore we labor we make it our ambition we are emulous that whether present or absent we may be accepted of him what a challenge is contained in these verses for you and me do we know anything of the travel of growing and groaning in the ministry if not, may God open our eyes not only to see the meaning of these verses, but more than that, the motivating power of these verses. Only thus shall we abide in Christ, that when he shall appear we may have confidence and not be ashamed away at his coming. Beloved Christians, I want to close this morning by bringing you a challenge in words that have become very precious to me over the last few hours. Remember our theme... Growing, groaning in the light of his coming. Christ is coming to redeem us, 
to complete his work of grace. We shall hail him, this same Jesus. We shall see him face to face. Christ is coming to receive us, as his promise makes so plain. Can we pray, O come, Lord Jesus? Are we pure and free from stain? Christ is coming to review us. All must face the judgment seat. Only those who live for Jesus can expect his smile to greet. Christ is coming to reward us with the crowning words, Well done! May we then enlist for Jesus till life's victory is won. Christ is coming to release us from creation's groan and tears, thus to hasten growth in Jesus in a land of endless years. Make us ready, blessed Savior. Teach us how to watch and pray. Consecrate our whole behavior to await the Advent day. Let us pray. Our Father, as we hush ourselves in thy presence with the challenge of thy truth, still searching our hearts, oh, make us ready for the Advent day, coming suddenly, coming soon, coming certainly night or noon. Jesus, we humbly pray, take all our sin away, keep us till that day when thou shalt come. We ask it for thy dear name's sake. Amen. This is David Olford. You have been listening to a message from God's Word delivered by my late father, Dr. Stephen F. Olford, who went to be with the Lord in the year 2004. If you wish to learn about our online resources or learning events at the Institute for Biblical Preaching, our web address is olford.org. That's O-L-F-O-R-D dot org. You also may want to benefit from our online video training on expository preaching, which can also be found on our website. Thank you so much for listening.